few slides to help us through this morning, uh, and we'll start with this one. Um, everyone loves a good story. Uh, human beings have been designed as storytelling creatures, and stories strengthen relationships. I don't know the last good story that you've heard. Uh, we've got a few friends that never let truth get in the way of a good story. You might have a few like that. Uh, but stories are beautiful for strengthening relationships. It might be catching up with a friend over a milkshake or a coffee or a beer or a wine. It might be reconnecting as a family at the end of the day. It might be smoko Monday morning, catching up on the events of the weekend. It might be hearing some ripping yarns around the campfire. But stories allow us to engage with the complexities of life and the contradictions and the nuances and ambiguities. They inspire us, they encourage us, and they unite us. Stories also strengthen cultures. African cultures, Australian indigenous cultures, Pacific cultures, Stories are passed down from generation to generation. In many of the Pacific cultures, the parents don't bring up the kids, the grandparents do, while the parents are away working. And part of that is that the elders of the tribe would pass on the law, L-O-R-E, of the culture to the young ones. We celebrate Anzac Day and we hear the stories that have shaped our culture. And one of the reasons the Jewish culture has survived for millennia is because of how they have kept their stories passed on generation to generation. Stories are vehicles of truth and meaning. And sometimes they confront us with how we need to change. The parables of Jesus were his chosen vehicle to deliver the message of the kingdom of God. Or you might think of David when he was needing to be confronted with his murder and adultery. Nathan used a story about a poor man and his sheep to confront him with the realities of his heart. How kind of the Lord to use the Bible narratives to teach us of his ways. These narratives reveal what God is like and reveal what we are like. In the biblical narratives, we see his story and we see our story. Now, history is his story. This is God overseeing all the events and circumstances of life and the people of the world and directing them to bring about his purposes for the world. But in these narratives, we also see our story. The humans we learn of are recognisable. We see faith and unbelief lived out in the ebb and flow of life in this broken world. And in these narratives, we often get to see a whole life or several generations all compressed into one story. And so we get to see how a small change of trajectory of someone's heart may end up with tragic consequences or wonderful blessings. These stories are gifts to us, inviting us in to consider our story in the light of his story. 
They are opportunities for us to make wise changes to our own lives before it's too late. Now, the Bible writers are gifted Hebrew storytellers. They use patterns and word plays and nuance to communicate meaning. So let's shift into story mode and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning through these three chapters titled Saul Made King. Now this morning we're not going to look just at one story, we've got two. Great value for money today. Uh, The first story we're going to give the title A King is Found and in it we'll see God at work in the ordinary. A story of God's wise hands of providence. And the second story, can such a kingship save us? We'll see God at work through the ordinary and we'll see the Lord's strong arm of deliverance. Now these chapters come about Saul becoming king, come in a context. Remember two weeks ago, Thomas looked at chapters 4, 5 and 6 where the Lord had proved himself a very capable king, giving deliverance from the enemies of Israel. Yet in 1 Samuel 8, Steve reminded us last week, Israel rejected God as their king and cried out for a king like all the other nations. And so we finish chapter 8 in verse 22 with the Lord's words. Listen to them and give them a king. So in chapter 9, we begin with these dark clouds. So let's see how the Lord directs this transition from a fellowship of tribes to a centralised monarchy. How will a human king and the people's desire to be like the other nations, how will this fit with the Lord, the true and living God, the King of all kings? Now, we'll take these stories one at a time. Kemi will come up now and she'll read some of our first story. Later on, we'll invite her back to kickstart the second story. Kemi, she'll read all of chapter 9 for us. So settle into story mode and let's see what the Lord has to say. So I'm reading 1 Samuel 9, 1 to 27. Everybody there? Looks like it. Okay. I'm a bit shorter. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Ephia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area of Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the districts of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. Then they reached the district of Zuf. Saul said to his servant who was with him, 
come, let's go back, or my father will start thinking about the donkeys and, stop wor- and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Maybe he will tell us what way to go. Saul said to his servant, if we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone were to inquire of God, they would say, come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up to the town, as they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to the town, to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people would not begin eating until he comes, because he must place a sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him there about this time. They went up to the town, and as soon as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell us where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me. And in the morning, I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your family line? Samuel answered, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about 30 of them in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said I have invited guests. 
and Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they went down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose around about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Samuel got ready, he and Saul, he and, sorry, when Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go ahead of us. And the servant did so, but you stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. Spoken stories are quite special, aren't they? Now, a good story has a quest. And in our first story, we've got not one quest, but three. This almost feels like an episode of The Amazing Race. We start by meeting Saul's father, a man named Kish, a man of stature and standing. Yet Kish has a problem. He'd lost his donkeys. Now, this might not seem too dramatic for us as city dwellers. But this may have had the same emotional impact, perhaps, as you and I losing our keys or spilling our coffee on the laptop or dropping the phone in the pool. And so our first mention of Saul is as a son being sent by his father on an urgent quest to find some lost donkeys. And our storyteller tells of a frustrating trip as Saul and his servant go on an ever-expanding journey of lost but not found. But they did not find them. But they were not there. They did not find them. And just as they were about to give up, a second quest is introduced. Let's find the man of God and he will help us. So they set out on this second adventure and received some help and direction along the way. And then there in the distance, they see him, the man of God they're seeking. Meanwhile, the camera pans back and our storyteller lets us in on another part of the story. Samuel, the man of God, is also on a quest. God had spoken to him and told him that this very day he would meet God's choice of king over Israel. So Samuel is on a quest to find a king, a quest that finishes quite easily and quickly. When he sees Saul in the distance and hears the Lord's confirmation, yes, this is the one that I've chosen. It's wonderful drama. Neither Saul nor Samuel get to see everything that we get to see. They're simply going about their ordinary days. Yet the Lord is clearly at work orchestrating all these events to bring a donkey-chasing country boy to find a king-seeking man of God. We see God's wise hands of providence at work, achieving his purposes in these ordinary and earthy moments of this particular day on planet Earth, 3,000 years ago. I love how Samuel greets Saul He invites him to have dinner with him and then says, oh, and those donkeys you're looking for, don't worry. They've been found. Don't set your heart on them. They've been taken care of and you and I have more important things to talk about. Saul is worrying about donkeys while the Lord is establishing his kingdom. 
After the meal, Samuel takes Saul aside and lets him in on the secret. Saul, you will become leader of God's people. What a day it's been. What a pill for this country boy to swallow. He is to be anointed as the first ever king over Israel. And Saul is bewildered. So to help Saul believe the unbelievable, Samuel gives four signs that will happen on Saul's journey home. You'll meet two men and they'll tell you that your dad stopped worrying about the donkeys and he's now worried about his son. And you'll meet three men and they'll give you three goats and some bread and some wine. You'll meet a group of prophets near the town of Gibeah. And fourthly, you'll encounter the spirit of the living God and you'll be changed to become a different person. And these things came to pass, just as Samuel had said. And there ends our story. A king is found. Now, one day when we were living in Africa, we came home and saw a cup smashed on the floor. And we looked at our cleaner and asked, what happened? And we were told, the cup fell. This was a culture thing going on. And we'd learned to not ask any more, to sit with this uncomfortable ambiguity. Did she break the cup? Did one of our kids break the cup? As Westerners, we wanted to know who had caused what. But we'd learned to be content with the nuance. The cup simply fell. And as I read this story about Saul, I sense the same nuance from our storyteller. A king is found. The story is not explicit, but the meaning is clear. The humans, they're muddled and lost and bumbling along, doing their ordinary things, but the sovereign God is at work. In all of these ordinary moments, arranging each and every circumstance so that the king of his choosing is found and his purposes come to pass. Listen to chapter 9, 16 and 17 when the Lord speaks to Samuel. About this time tomorrow... I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. You might be hearing echoes of Exodus 3, 7 and 8, when the Lord spoke to Moses. I've heard my people crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them and bring them to a good and spacious land. Though the people had cried out in 1 Samuel 8, give us a king like all the other nations. And though the Lord responded with, listen to them, give them a king. Our storyteller is assuring us that none of this is outside the Lord's control. The Lord has heard the cry behind the cry. God's wise hands of providence are at work. The king of God's choosing has been found and God will deliver his people. So now we move on to our second story. 
Kemi will come up and she'll start at 1 Samuel 10, verse 17. Glasses again. All right, 1 Samuel 10, 17 to 27. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you by the power of Egypt. Sorry, I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. For you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes and the, the, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, the son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than all the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scrandals said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. So again, our story begins under an ominous dark cloud. There's tension in the air. Samuel has summoned the people to meet at Mizpah. God has been your rescuer, he says, but you've rejected him and have demanded a king like all the other nations. It's time to gather. God wants to speak to you. Now, this feels like we've all been summoned to the principal's office. Not just me and not just my bunch of friends, but the whole school has been gathered, expecting detentions and suspensions and expulsions. But here at Mizpah, instead of judgment, the Lord grants their request. And it's almost comical how it plays out. The tribe of Benjamin is chosen, the clan of Matri, and then, drumroll please, here is Saul, son of Kish. But Saul's nowhere to be found. And when they ask the Lord where he is, he replies, you'll find him hiding in the baggage. 
Is our storyteller a part-time comedian as well? Perhaps he's hinting that this young Saul may not be the man of character that we actually need as a king. Yet the people approve of the Lord's choice. Samuel affirms how tall and strong and handsome Saul is. And the people respond, this is exactly who we're looking for. Long live the king. And Samuel gives some further instructions, most likely reading Deuteronomy 17, explaining how God wants the kingship to function. And some brave men gather around him, volunteering as his warriors, but others are not so sure. They ask, can such a king save us? And so we finish chapter 10 with this uncertainty. The people have their king. But what will happen next? One of Israel's nearby enemies, Nahash the Ammonite, sees an opportunity and he threatens to attack and humiliate the people of Jabesh Gilead. A seven-day ceasefire is negotiated and the people send for help from their brother Israelites. Please come to our rescue. The people of Saul's hometown weep at the news, despairing that there is no hope. But this is Saul's moment. Filled with the Spirit of God, he takes the lead and rallies the troops and boldly declares his intent. And then in a single night, the arrogant Ammonites are slaughtered and the people of Jabesh Gilead are rescued. It's a great victory for the new king and his people. Some suggested, those people who didn't want you to be king, let's find them and put them to death. But Saul says, no. No one else will be put to death today. For the Lord has rescued Israel. This is God's strong arm of deliverance at work through the ordinary. The echoes of 1 Samuel 2 verse 10 are clear. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Can such a king save us? The people's question focused on the man who was king. And he seemed to have proved himself capable. But our storyteller has already given us some clues. Something else is going on and it's critical we take it to heart. When Samuel explained the regulations of the kingship in chapter 10 verse 25, he used the word, the Hebrew word misput, the custom or the manner or the right pattern. It's the same word that was used in chapter 8 verse 11 when Samuel described the usual practice of a king like the other nations. Do you see our storyteller's clue? The Israelites were wanting a king like all the others, and Samuel warned them about the mispat or pattern that would not be good for the nation. But God, on the other hand, he is setting up a kingship with an entirely different mispat, a pattern in which the human king 
is rightly related to God as the King of Kings. I'm sure you're starting to see some clues that are pointing us to Jesus here. In Saul and David and all the other kings to follow, we would see many examples of human kings that fell short of the mispart that the Lord had intended. And so in the prophets, there developed a longing for a Messiah, an anointed king who would actually listen to the Lord and would walk in his ways and empowered by the Spirit would rescue and save his people. In the Gospels, we find Jesus revealed as this Messiah that the prophets spoke of. He had humble origins, growing up in the hill country of Galilee. Throughout his life, he listened to his heavenly Father and walked obediently in his ways. He was anointed as king in private. And he was not recognized by many for who he truly was. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do great works of healing and deliverance, rescuing people from their distress. He was the true and perfect Messiah, unlike any other king before him. For in Mark 10, it says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can such a king save us, was the mocking cry against Saul. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he was mocked in the same way. Luke 23, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ, the anointed king? Save yourself and save us. The irony was that in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, this humble king was saving his people. God's strong arm of deliverance was at work, fulfilling words given to Joseph before the birth of Jesus. In Matthew 1.21, Mary, you'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. In this story of Saul becoming king, God was setting up a pattern, a mispat for the monarchy. The Lord would remain king over Israel and he would be the one to lead and guide and protect and rescue his people. But he would delight to exercise his kingship through ordinary people, empowered and enabled by him. And this was a pattern to lead us to King Jesus. So how do we respond to these two stories? How does his story connect with your story and my story and our story? Before we look at some specifics, let's take a moment to consider in general, how does a person respond to God? The healthiest posture to take before the Lord is as a disciple, a learner, an apprentice. Jesus calls us with the words, come to me and learn from me. And we do not come as perfect disciples or even mature disciples. We simply come as we are, 
as apprentices looking to our master for help and guidance and wisdom as we desire to grow to become like him. And then as we seek him and learn of him, our response is always to repent and believe to say no to sin and yes to God, trusting who God is and what he has said and what he has done. And as we stay in that same posture of faith, we who believe also receive. Into our emptiness, the Lord gives his grace and his love and his life. And then we obey, not in our own strength, but by his enabling grace. Not because we should or because we must or because we're meant to, but because we have come to love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. And we now desire to walk in the good and life-giving way of Jesus. You might like to replace the words believe and receive with the word rest. For we live by faith. Trusting God to do within us what we cannot do for ourselves. And as we repent and believe and receive and obey, we begin to truly worship, living a whole life for God, in gratitude for all that he is and all that he has done. The growing disciple becomes a grateful worshipper. So with these things in mind, I'd like to highlight three things for us to respond to before we finish. Three things that we've seen in these two stories. Firstly, the godness of God. Now, I haven't made a spelling mistake and missed an O. These stories speak of the godness of God. Remember Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 2. There is no holy one like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. God is God. He's in his own category and there is no one like him. In these stories, we see this God at work, his wise hands of providence and his strong arm of deliverance. He is good and wise and able. He knows all things and he does as he pleases. Even the wrongly motivated request of the people for a king like all the other nations cannot frustrate his purposes. He hears the cry behind that cry and he says, I will do even better. I will give you a kingship unlike any other nation in the world. Now, how do we respond? to the godness of God. May I suggest firstly that we stop sitting on his throne. Release control. Kneel before him in humility and let him rule. Let him be in charge of your life. He does a pretty good job at it. And then trust him completely With everything in your life, he is good and wise and able. So let's trust him. So a question for you to ponder. Does your life reflect a humility, 
a trust and a confident hope that all is well because God is God and you trust him completely. The Godness of God. What a wonderful truth to take to heart. What a wonderful God to worship. Secondly, the ordinary matters. Back in the early 60s, President Kennedy visited NASA headquarters for the very first time. And he met a cleaner and asked him, what do you do here at NASA? And the cleaner replied, sir, I am helping put a man on the moon. The cleaner saw the big picture. And he saw that his small and ordinary contribution had great significance because of how it connected with the plans and purposes of NASA. God is at work in the ordinary, everyday moments of life and through ordinary, everyday people like you and me. This is his modus operandi, how he likes to work. And in the stories of, one Saul, uh, in the stories of Saul becoming king, He was establishing the next phase in the kingdom of God on this earth. In our day and age, he continues to establish the kingdom of King Jesus. The ordinary is where this kingdom work happens. Remember our stories. Some girls at a well answer a traveller's question. The man of God? Yeah, he's over there, but hurry, otherwise you'll miss him. Two men pass on a message. Those donkeys you've been looking for, don't worry, they've been found. Three men meet a stranger on the road. This might seem odd, but we'd like you to take these three goats and this bread and this wine as a gift from the Lord. What happens in your ordinary day? What circumstances is the Lord coordinating? What people does he bring across your path? Don't underestimate the internal significance, eternal, of all of these ordinary moments, especially the interruptions. In every situation that you find yourself in, ask the question, Lord, what are you up to here? And how can I join in with what you are doing? Any one of these ordinary moments may be used by the Lord according to his wise hands of providence or his strong arm of deliverance and they may be filled with eternal significance as he works through his followers like you and me to love people and to connect them with King Jesus and to grow the kingdom of God. Is this how you view your day-to-day life? Ordinary, perhaps, but potentially filled with wonderfully eternal significance as you offer each moment up to the Lord to be used as he sees fit with your mind and your heart alert to the opportunities to serve and to bring glory to the Lord Jesus. In God's kingdom, there is no ordinary life. For some of us, we might have become consumed by our lost donkeys. 
so absorbed and obsessed by the worries of our day that we are distracted, perhaps unaware of how the Lord is actually at work in our present circumstances. Or we might be hiding in the baggage, shrinking back in fear from what the Lord is calling us to, rather than stepping forward in faith. Brothers and sisters, let's open our eyes. Let's let go of these lost donkeys. Let's stop hiding in the baggage. And let's look with expectant faith to the Lord and join in with what he's doing in our ordinary lives. There's only one time and place where you can live for Jesus, and that is our here and now. In this ordinary moment, in this ordinary place, will we be available to him to do his wonderful work, that he would do that work in us and through us? And if someone was to ask you, what do you do around here on planet Earth? Could you reply at any moment of your day, Sir, I'm with the Lord and we are building the kingdom of God. Thirdly, the echoes of Jesus. The Bible is a unified story that reveals the Lord Jesus. And these stories of King Saul are like shadows that prepare us for the true light of King Jesus. They're like echoes or shockwaves moving out from the greatest event in all of history, the death and resurrection of King Jesus. Instead of a king like all the other nations, we are given a kingship unlike any nation. And we're given King Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. No other king would do this for his people. No other king would live so rightly, so perfectly, so humbly, setting an example of how a God-honouring life is to be lived. This is our king, and he calls us to follow him. This is our saviour who died to free us from our sin. This is our master who calls us to a whole of life apprenticeship with him. And this is our leader who invites us to join him in his mission as he seeks and saves the lost sheep of this world. How will you respond to King Jesus today? What's the Holy Spirit highlighting for you in this here and now? Remember his invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Come to King Jesus. Taste and see that he is good and wise and able. Find your place in his story. Walk in his life-giving way and live by his grace and live for his glory. Let's pray. Lord,
Lord Jesus, we worship you and we thank you for coming and living a humble, ordinary life and for serving people 2,000 years ago in such a way that blessed each one that looked to you in faith. Thank you that as you did that, you were giving us an example of what is possible. And we thank you for the many ways you've been active in our lives, calling us to yourself and revealing something of yourself that we could see it and believe it and trust in it. We thank you for these precious stories of 1 Samuel. Thank you for how these stories of 3,000 years ago have such relevance for us because you help us understand them and you are the ones, the one that these stories speak of. Please help us to turn away from our sin, to believe you, to receive all that we need from you and then to walk in grateful, worshipping obedience. Please help us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we 